0: the High Center Studios of Messiah College in Grantham, Pennsylvania, welcome to Season 4 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning
1: historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome everyone to Episode 25 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast. Drew, as you mentioned in the opening, we are back for Season 4. Feels good. Yeah, needless to say, a lot has happened over the summer. Uh, The Trump era continues. Texas, Florida, the Caribbean suffered through two terrible hurricanes. And I hear more are actually on the way. White supremacy reared its ugly head in a major way in Charlottesville, Virginia. We'll be talking a little bit more about that later. If there is a silver lining in any of this, it is that we need history more than ever. As one commentator recently put it, historians need to use their power now and take their role as public intellectuals seriously. Needless to say, we are ready, always ready to take on this challenge here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, as producer of the podcast, get us up to speed on what we've been doing to keep delivering good American history in these times of political and social change. First and foremost, our fundraising has allowed us to expand some of
0: our work. For starters, we have been doing a lot of our social media work and promotion through our own personal accounts. And while I always love a good Twitter mention, that's at D. Hermeling to you, we now have a dedicated Facebook and Twitter account. So if you want to keep this conversation going even after the episode drops, join us on either platform at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. Speaking of donors, we've added a number of new donors whom we want to thank personally, Amanda Bump. Hannah Blaze and the Reverend Peter Prabel. Thank you so much for helping to support historical thinking. We also want to thank our regular gold sponsors. As usual, this episode is brought to you with the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, as well as our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. Plus, we have a new gold sponsor, Gretchen Adams. So thank you for joining us. Some of you have been following our donor map. We are trying to claim a donor from every state in the union. And while we have expanded over the summer, there's still a lot of white on our map. So if you think you might be able to help us, and I'm looking at you, Rhode Island, Montana, Hawaii, and New Jersey. New
1: Jersey. I can't believe it.
0: Come on, Jersey. <laughs> let's go. Head over to the slash support and join us. Finally, perhaps most importantly, we are so happy to have Josh Lowry back behind the glass. He tried desperately to get away from us, but he couldn't escape. So he'll continue to man the boards as we work on this upcoming season.
1: Thank you so much for all the support. About a week ago, I actually toyed with the idea of taking our podcast weekly, uh, and we'd love to do that, but we can't do it without your support. So again, I appreciate it. Even after I made that announcement, I noticed some of you uh, sort of upped your pledges, and we picked up a few new uh, patrons. So uh, we really appreciate you supporting this kind of podcasting. We need history more than ever. I just was telling that to one of my classes today. This summer, for those of you who are patrons, you know you received three special summer mini-episodes. We talked to Todd Allen, civil uh, rights tourism expert. We talked to David Pettigrew about digital history. And then we talked about Corey Holsizer. We talked to him about teaching historical thinking to middle schoolers. So we were really pleased. You can still get those episodes. Uh, Just become a patron of The Way of Improvement Leads Home. Well, Drew, the summer is now over. Uh, we are in the middle of September 2017 here as we record this episode. I would be remiss if I did not ask you how the studying for comps is going. You are a continue to work on your Ph.D. comps in American history at Lehigh University. How's things going?
0: Uh, I got I got a lot done this summer. Good. Good. And yet, for some reason, it still feels like I have an overwhelming amount of work left.
1: That's always how it is.
0: I'm getting that sense. I've been uh, commiserating with a lot of my colleagues, uh, both those who are in a similar stage here on campus in Messiah and then those who are in my uh, cohort at Lehigh. But on the whole, it's been mostly good, uh, you know, immersing myself in the work of great historians, anthropologists and archaeologists. And I've only experienced the occasional moment of overwhelming existential dread.
1: I was talking to one of our librarians here at Messiah college the other day, and she was saying, Hey, I met your friend, Drew. He comes to the library every single day and he sits there by himself Mm -hmm. studying in the middle of the summer. Uh, and I went up and introduced myself. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so, uh, I can, I can at least, uh, I have some evidence at least to suggest that you have been studying for those comps. If you're one of his profs at Lehigh, yes, he has been working hard. Are you teaching this semester, Drew?
0: Yeah. Well, once again, I'm teaching two sections of the college of the college's first year seminar. You know, it's a really great program here at Messiah. The I really like playing that role of being the uh, the fir- the a first year students introduction to the rigors of undergraduate work. I, I, I just I, I have a go. lot of I have a lot of fun doing, you know, helping students write their first real academic paper or helping students learn how to read closely as opposed sure. to, to maybe sure. how they read and in high school, so my course is called "Imagining American Indians in Film." Uh, we're screening films about American Indians, starting in the silent era and wow. ending in what many consider, right now, the current golden age of indigenous filmmakers. With an eye towards how uh, depictions of American Indians inform our understanding of this marginalized group today. So it's been a lot of fun. We've had a good start, you know, I I've had at least one student already expressed both a little bit of uh, anxiety, but. Uh, Acknowledgement. That's probably a good thing that I'm. I might be ruining the movie Pocahontas for
1: her. So, <laughs> what else other than Pocahontas? What are some other movies that well, you're showing that yeah. we might recognize?
0: Well, I mean, if, if if you are a film buff, you you are likely familiar uh, with Nanook of the North, yeah. which is you know kind of the first American documentary. At least many consider it to be that. So that's that's actually the only movie we've done so far. Uh, we'll be doing a couple westerns, um, both The Searchers and Broken Arrow, which mm. have kind of two different. Uh, different depictions of of American Indians. We'll be going through the, uh, an era of more positive portrayals, but kind of still from the outside. That's Dances with Wolves sure. and Last of the Mohicans. Pocahontas, uh, Terrence Malick's New World, ending with Smoke Signals, which is uh, kind of this very well-acclaimed first Native American, all Native American-made film, and then, and then ending with an Inuit film called Fast Runner as a kind of bookend going back to a, a similar place uh, geographically, as Nunuk of the North, and and having a very different different look into that uh, into that culture. Wow, sounds like a great course. No, well, it's a lot of fun because yeah, I think yeah. students are excited because they they think they get to watch movies all day, but then they get tricked into actually having to <laughs> think about
1: it. Uh, so, what is new in the busy life of John Fia? How was your summer? Yeah, busy is probably the operative word. I spent most of the summer. I've been working on this long-standing project on the American Revolution, so I made some headway on that. I'll hope to share some more details on that project in the future. So keep an eye on the blog. If you got our special civil rights tour episode this summer, if you're one of our patrons and heard the interview with Todd Allen, you know that I took a civil rights tour through the South this summer, which was just amazing. You can learn more again by becoming a patron and uh, hear our interview with Todd Allen, who organized that tour. And then finally, I've been working on a few other projects, uh, which I'm not quite ready to talk about yet. But I hope to say something soon. A uh, big project in the works, and uh, again, stay tuned to the blog.
0: Well, let's let's talk about today's episode. I think it's a very pertinent issue, looking at what has been happening over the summer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're trying to. Uh, one of the things we we wanted to do is we're trying to this season get some some good episodes to kind of connect with a lot of the things going on in current events, and and this one on race and white supremacy in light of Charlottesville is certainly one of our uh, uh, one of our attempts to do that. Um, So, yes, in light of the white supremacist march on Charlottesville, we're going to use this episode to try to historicize the hate and racism that we saw from the groups who converged in August 2017 on the University of Virginia. And we have historian and religious studies scholar Kelly Baker with us to help. She's the author of a much acclaimed book, The Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930, and as we will see, Baker is going to argue that the KKK must be understood as a manifestation of American religion. So it's going to be a really, really interesting interview. Yeah, I'm really,
0: I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Baker's been making some waves. You know, she's been popping up on on a lot of uh, newscasts and radio interviews, and and as someone who's uh, dialed into to hashtag Twitter historians, she's she's yeah. in that conversation a lot. So it's it's a really exciting. A really exciting and thoughtful person to bring onto the show. She
1: is a very gifted kind of public writer too. You can find her work all over the place in in popular websites, popular magazines, web magazines, and so forth. So I, I really, I really like her stuff, and I, I even like the way that she's sort of reaching out to uh, more public audiences with her historical historical work
0: yeah she's really answering that call for historians using their becoming the public intellectuals that we need to be right Um, she's using her power absolutely yeah but before we get to the interview john you have some commentary for us
1: i write this commentary in the wake of the news surrounding a september 15 2017 meeting between donald trump and senator tim scott Scott is the only African American member of the United States Senate and the first African American to be elected to the Senate from the South since the days of Reconstruction. Scott visited the White House to talk with Trump about race in America. We don't know much about what was said during the meeting, but Scott reported that the president once again implied that there was a moral equivalence between the white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville on August 11 and 12 carrying tiki torches and chanting racist slogans, I might add, and the protesters who came to the Virginia city to stop them. A civil rights activist named Heather Heyer was killed by a white supremacist during the melee. Some of you will remember Trump's comments in the wake of this dark moment. He made statements over the course of several days, claiming that there were good people among the white supremacists, people who just came to Charlottesville to protest the removal of a statue to Confederate General Robert E. Lee. He blamed the violence in Charlottesville on both sides, or many sides, and initially failed to condemn the white supremacists. The longtime members of the KKK and other hate groups, and many associated with the so-called alt-right, cheered what they interpreted to be the president's unwillingness to offend some of his base who embraced these racist ideas. Trump's remarks were certainly a low point in the history of the American presidency, and I'm sure there were many reasons why he made them. One of those reasons is his utter failure to understand American history. If he knew something about slavery, Jim Crow, or the Civil Rights Movement, he may have been able to speak into the Charlottesville tragedy with more empathy and perhaps even more compassion. He would have understood what happened in Charlottesville as part of a longer historical trajectory that has plagued this country since its founding. He would have seen the white supremacists as part of the story of systemic racism that runs contrary and always has run contrary to American ideals and values. Trump supporters think the criticism of his both sides remarks following Charlottesville is unfair. The president, they argue, did condemn racism and white supremacy, and that is enough. But as a historian, I cannot help but think of comments like this in a larger context. Trump wants to make America great again. He wants us to return to some largely unspecified time period in the American past when America, according to him, was indeed great. As I have said multiple times here and at our blog and in other published pieces, make America great again is a historical statement. So forgive me if I happen to notice that almost every time Trump makes references to American history, it has something to do with race. Andrew Jackson, his favorite president, understood democracy as a way to advance a republic defined by white supremacy. Jackson's Indian removal plan was only the most egregious example of this. There were many more. During the 2016 campaign, Trump appealed to Operation Wetback, Dwight Eisenhower's plan to round up illegal aliens and send them back to Mexico. Our current president regularly talks about law and order, a phrase used by Richard Nixon to appeal to white ethnic conservatives who did not like what they were seeing in American cities as African-Americans rioted in defense of civil rights in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And we could go on. When does Donald Trump think America was great? The 1980s? The 1950s, the 1880s, the 1830s, 1776. Until he tells us, we can only guess based on the American history he tends to celebrate. His comments after Charlottesville should be understood in this light.
0: Today we are joined by Dr. Kelly J. Baker the editor of Women in Higher Education, a feminist newsletter in its 26th year. She's also a freelance writer with a religious studies PhD who covers religion, higher education, gender, labor, motherhood, and popular culture. She has been featured in The Chronicle of Higher Education, Women in Higher Education, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Religion and Politics, Christian Century, and The Washington Post. She's the author of the award-winning book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKKs Appeal to Protestant America, 1915-1930, to as well as The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Apocalypse in American Culture. She received her Ph.D. in American Religious History from Florida State University in the Department of Religion.
1: We are thrilled today in our first episode of Season 4 to have Kelly J. Baker as our guest. I have in my hand right now her book, The Gospel, or Gospel According to the Klan, The KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. Kelly, welcome to the podcast.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me
1: today. I mean, we have been talking here all episode about obviously current events uh, and trying to bring some historical perspective to current events, and obviously uh, we've been we've been talking about this in relationship to Charlottesville and what happened back in August with uh, the um, the emergence of this white supremacist uh, group or groups. Uh, in Charlottesville. So we, we thought we would have you on to get some historical context. Now, I'm not sure. Most, most of our listeners have probably heard of the Klan, of the, of the but why don't you give us just a real quick kind of general history of the Klan for those of our listeners who might need a refresher. So in a nutshell, when and why was the Klan founded? And then you're much more interested in the Klan, uh, say, in the 1920s. Uh, why did it reemerge during your period?
2: Right. No, uh, this is a great question. Uh, So the Klan emerges after the Civil War. Um, We call this the Reconstruction Klan, primarily as um, it sort of depends on who you believe here, as my little caveat there. Um, The Klan liked to claim that they were just a social club of um, Confederate veterans who were pulling pranks on African-Americans, folks that they thought were sympathetic um, to the cause of, um, African American enfranchisement. Uh, but the history of this, of course, is, um, a little bit darker than that. Um, so it's a group that primarily was involved in terrorism in this moment and, and worked really hard against what they were afraid of, racial equality, right? And this Mm -hmm. nervousness over what that would mean somehow Mm -hmm. after the civil war. Um, Now, the order that I focus on is the 1920s order, which um, existed from about 1915 to 1930. Um, That was basically a rebranding of that earlier order. So there's still a nervousness over race, and um, it's an explicitly white supremacist order, like the previous one was. Uh, But they also become increasingly concerned about things like immigration. Primarily Catholic and Jewish immigration to the country, and this nervousness over what it would mean if Catholics somehow outnumber white Protestants um, in this early 20th century um, and what that would do to the character of the nation. Um, they were expe- explicitly nationalist, um, that they were for America, but America was very much rendered narrowly as for just white Protestants. Um, And they were also concerned about what was going on with white women, right? This nervousness over whether Mm -hmm. white women, um, what their place was in American society and whether they were sort of stepping out of homes and maybe stepping into the public in a way that wasn't, that the Klan didn't quite appreciate. Um, so both of those orders have that kind of carryover of white supremacy. Uh, the thing that I would note really quickly is that the Klan has a variety of different incarnations in the 20th century and even in the 21st century. So that that main Klan that I'm talking about in the 1920s is the last like unified order of the Klan. When we talk about the Klan today, it's a lot of different smaller factions and groups all over the nation that doesn't have the kind of prowess that they once had
1: yeah that's really interesting i did I did not know that i thought it was i thought there was just a continuation now did just real quick did the reconstruction clan did they have a kind of more national organization or was that just something from the twenties
2: um, they attempted, right, yeah. to branch out beyond the region of the South, but they just never had the scope of the 20s. I mean, one of the things that I always try to remind audiences is that in the 20s, um, there were Klan organizations in every single one of the 48 continental states, right? Wow. So when we talk about national, like, we really mean national here. So it's yeah. not just the South, right? It's not right. just Indiana. But right. they have, um, you know, Klan uh, groups in New Jersey and Oregon, and they just very much were all over the place
1: at that moment. Yeah, fascinating. Um now part of your contribution to uh to to the study of the clan is you argue that the clan is in essence a religious movement. Uh, right. Tell us tell us more about that. You know, how is the clan uh um a, a form or what they do a form of religion? Or how right. do they connect with religion or Protestantism? Do, yeah. yeah.
2: No, um, so one of the things I noticed when I first started doing this research is that everyone sort of when they wanted to talk about hate groups, and this was historians, this was sociologists, this was a whole bunch of different scholars, were not really great on the religion question. Mm. So that one of the things that happened is people would say something like, they can't be religious because they're a hate group, right? And religion's right. not about hate, right. so they right. can't be. So so hate groups can't be religious because these things don't work together. and. And what I found in my archival research is, of course, these things work together, right? Um, We can't sort of just say because someone's part of a hate group that they aren't, you know, involved in some sort of Christian movement, too, right? We can't, like, easily demarcate identities in that way. Um, And the 20s Klan was very interested in the promotion of white Protestantism. Mm -hmm. That One of the things that really drove them and one of the things that they were very nervous about was the nature of white Protestantism and how it would change based on immigration, how it would change based on African-Americans having more rights than they previously had had. Um, and this sort of question about, you know, what would America be if it wasn't a white Protestant nation in this moment? So that's part of it. The other part of it is that Klan newspapers that I looked at print prayers. They print, um, you know, exhortations to go to church clansmen because the foundation of masculinity and the foundation of your family should be faith. So that you also find this promotion of Christianity and that they're not super interested in particular forms of Protestantism. It's not like we want all clansmen to be Methodist, right? Right, right? Or Baptist or something like this. But they're in, instead saying, no, just go to Protestant churches. Like we need you to know this stuff, right? We, yeah need you to participate in this. And we really need you to understand Jesus. Right. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that was so striking to me when, in the early stages is how much they talked about Jesus and how much they sort of used Jesus as a model of what their behavior should be um, without kind of recognizing that they were also involved in like terrorist <laughs> tactics. Right, right. So, you know, that these two could sort of exist simultaneously for them. And that they didn't see a distinction, I thought was a really fascinating piece, too, that, that there's a way in which religion informed what they do and religious is what they are. And that existed alongside of all the kind of scarier things that we know the Klan for as well.
1: Do you know, um, do you know if uh, there was any connection between, you know, the fundamentalist, Protestant fundamentalist movement and the Klan at this time? Is there any overlap between the two?
2: So there is a little, right? And you can yeah. see this on discussions in Klan print about things like evolution. Right? Right. That They're very much in this kind of fin- fundamentalist mindset about this. Um, and you can also see sort of the shift toward evangelicalism, too, in this as mm-hmm. well, so that you mm-hmm. get kind of both of these identities. And it seems that Klan's, Klan newspapers and their editors are pretty much pulling anything in from Protestantism that works for them, right? So that they're not, you know, strictly fundamentalist or strictly evangelical, but they're very much kind of saying, like, what if this works? What kind of theology are we putting together here, right? And what can we um, put? And they they try to do things like, you know, claim that Williams, Jennings, Bryan— um, is a Klansman, you know, he's not, but they, they like want to make this claim later that like this guy here, right. Who's so important. um, It's a part of our movement. Um, you know, and every, and then there's pushback, but it, it is kind of interesting to see how they try to maneuver themselves within these movements that are happening at the same time, right. To kind of claim ownership or claim identification anyway.
1: Right. Now you're also just to follow up with this, you're also sort of, um making a sort of historiographical maneuver in this piece yeah, you're, right. you're you're trying to um if i read you correctly you're trying to integrate the clan uh into the sort of larger story of american religious history you're american you're an american religious historian right by training um so you're just if i read you right right you're not content to just treat the clan as a kind of uh you know segregated, I think subculture is the word you use, or a fringe mm-hmm. movement within American religious history, but you want to bring the Klan uh sort of into the story, make it an important part of the lar- of this larger narrative. Tell tell me a little bit about that. Why should we think of the Klan as part of the story and, and why is it neglected?
2: Right. No, I so one of the things I'll, I'll start with the neglected part. Yeah. So as I was preparing this book as a younger graduate student, um, I kind of pulled all those like great books about American religion, you know, and yeah, that kind sure. of like standard, like, let me figure out what narratives exist already and let me sort of go right. through this. And what I discovered is that the Klan like appeared for maybe a paragraph, you know, if you're really lucky, they might've gotten a page, right. Yeah, in this long yeah. sprawling book,
1: I think you mentioned and, uh Sidney Alstrom at one point right. or something. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So they just kind of pop up in there and it's always like a, well, there was also this thing called the Klan. <laughs> They're sort of terrible people. Right, right, <laughs> right. Right. Um, you know, and so they were there and then they were gone. Right. And that's yeah. the end of the discussion, right? Like no reflection on how they might represent, you know, racism in different periods or how they might tie into other kind of movements that aren't as extreme as they are, but you know, have the same politics or something like this. Um, and so I think part of it is this kind of tendency sometimes to want to tell the American story as a progressive story, right? Like that we start at one point and that we get better, right? Like things get better in a certain way. And we're like marching towards some future where everything will be worked out in some way, shape or form. And like, I, like, I understand stories like that. I mean, those are kind of hopeful stories that kind of make us get up in the morning and and do things we need to. Um, but I think it really underplays (laughs) some of the very violent, Awful things that also happen in this arena of American religions. And it makes it harder to connect how those events. Are bound together over historical time periods when we sort of say, like, well, the clan is just fringe, we don't really have to pay attention to them in this period. And then we get to the 1960s and people are like, wait, the clan is back. How did that happen? Right.
1: Or right, the 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 Reconstruction Klan suddenly is back in the 20s? Wait a minute. Like,
2: like how does this happen, (laughs) right? And 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 so part of that is how we tell those stories where we don't kind of understand that maybe the Klan is a feature of American history and not a bug, right? right? Um to sort of understand it that way. So I think, so that's part of the neglect issue. And so for me, I thought as someone who has long studied religious intolerance and racial intolerance and white supremacy, that, if we kind of shifted the story and said, if we take the Klan, right, as indicative of American religions, which is a very provocative statement, like what would this history now look like, right? What do we get from this history if we say white supremacy is a feature, if we say extremist movements like this are a feature, um, if we say that none of this stuff is the exception, but it's the rule, right? Like what kind of stories do we tell? And I think we tell stories about, um, the, the impression uh, the oppression of indigenous peoples right that kind of makes sense here in so much that the Klan even tries to like narrate indigenous peoples out of American history uh-huh. right like they're just gonna forget about them entirely right. um, and they're not the only people doing this in the 20s right yeah. um, that it ignores um, the treatment of black and brown people in American history right mm-hmm. um, and this kind of can explain some of that stuff that we still haven't wrapped our head around in 2017 I think um, so so, yeah, so part of it is like my cagey attempt to say we really have to take these issues of religious and racial intolerance seriously. And we can't take those groups that make us uncomfortable and just kind of toss them to the edges right. of our narrative.
0: Right. You also make an argument about the connections between the Klan and, and masculinity in yeah. the 1920s. So uh, unpack that argument for us a little bit more.
2: Yeah, sure. So one of the things that Klan newspapers were really good at, like, so they're really good at telling people to go to church. And they were really good at telling Klansmen how to be men, right? So they spent mm-hmm. a lot of pages. And when I say a lot, I really do mean a lot. A lot of pages explaining to Klansmen what model masculinity looked like, right? Um, so that, like, to be a man is to be chivalrous, right? To be a man is to be a protector of white womanhood. Um, to be a man is to be a faithful Protestant, right? To be a man is also to be a faithful white supremacist, Um and so one of the things that they sort of do in this is they conjure up these idea that Klansmen are um, wholesome and they are dedicated family men, right, or members of families if they don't have their own families yet, that they are concerned about what happens to white women, that they're defenders, that they're protectors, Um And it's a very, like, limited vision of masculinity. It's very circumscribed. Mm -hmm. And what they do in this is they often suggest that what Klansmen should try to do is that they should try— to model themselves after Jesus, right? That Jesus becomes the sort of epitome of masculinity for them. And they're like, you know, this is a guy who sacrificed. He even sacrificed himself, right? Um, This is, you know, an example of somebody who knows the importance of staying with your kin, right? Um, They made this kind of wild argument about... that Jesus was Jewish, but they really appreciated him because he understood the importance of sticking with your race or ethnicity, yeah. which is kind of a wild argument right. for them yeah. to make. But like they're still committed to it in some sort of way um, to say that they would that Jesus, of course, like if he existed today, would be supportive of their white supremacy, um, which is a very mm-hmm. kind of common tactic mm-hmm. <laughs> in their yeah. print culture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's very much tied into like if what the nation needs are knights and defenders, and so clansmen were supposed to be that, um, and so they spend a lot of time doing that sort of, this is what your model is. They also spend a lot of time saying, gentlemen, we have heard that people are not following, right? The rules that we are supposed to follow. So that, the other kind of part of their print culture is them, um, is the clan leadership scolding men who can't live up to these ideals. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and saying like, no, we don't get to, we don't get to do that. And I've heard some of you were using harsh language, right. right. At local chapter meetings. And this is not, this is not what men do. So it's this kind of really funny and also, um, remarkably kind of tragic vision that men can only be, Right, this particular white Protestant man, and that there are no other options, right? Sure. Like, this is the only option you have.
1: Yeah. I, I'm going to uh, go off script real quick here for a second, because as you're talking, um, how did you deal with this project? I, I should have put this as yeah. one of the questions. How did you, day to day, sort of reading this stuff by the Klan? I mean, tell me about, I'm sure you've been asked this before. Yeah. Tell me about this experience. Like, how did you tolerate this stuff every day?
2: Yeah, I I, um, I would go through a lot of this stuff and then I would spend a lot of time in the sunshine <laughs> and, um, and with people who love me deeply, yeah. right, and understand the importance of watching really bad TV shows that are only funny when right. you're sort of dealing with this. But yeah, no, I mean, it's it was like a very much a strategy of like how much I could handle and how much I could sort of deal with writing about this versus how much time I wanted to spend – you know, um, playing with my daughter, for example, right. when she right. was little, when I was finishing up the manuscript, right. Where it's sure. like, I think we should spend some time blowing bubbles right. because that would make mommy happy. Right. Like, uh-huh. I don't know, like, I assume it would make her happy too, but you know, there's right. like, like I need something that's kind of separate from this. And, um, and so, you know, part of it is like this kind of self-care routine that I developed about how to sort of engage this, but it was also one of those things where what motivated this project was a concern, that we hadn't gotten as far as we thought we had, right? (laughs) Like this like nervousness that I had that people wanted the clan to be history, but it really wasn't. And we're still dealing with the after effects. And so there's this kind of urgency to my writing that also helped me that I felt like I had a cause that I was working towards. And that made it important work, even if it was hard work. Um, But yeah, it required a lot of shifting. Um, And it meant that I did other projects on the side that were more fun, right? Where it's like, let's look at something in pop culture and analyze that, because that is like lovely and wonderful yeah. and it yeah. doesn't involve white supremacists, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, so it was very much just like, how do you kind of do other things around that, that, um, we're also fulfilling, but were a break from some of this really heavy, um, yeah. terrible stuff. I mean, we could almost devote
1: through an entire episode to this kind of a conversation. I just got done with my, I'm, I'm teaching a course this semester called teaching history, and I'm trying to get my students to sort of understand, cultivate kind of historical empathy even with figures that they might find kind of morally reprehensible, you know, defining empathy as just sort of merely understanding, right? Not sympathy, mm-hmm. not sympathy in any way. So uh, I, you know, I, I almost want to sort of drag them into this conversation and say, you know, if you really want to sort of understand the Klan, you sometimes have to, uh, you know, pull back at times. Right, right. So you don't lose perspective at, you know, the work of a historian, right? You're trying to explain uh, before you condemn in some ways. Um, So, yeah, great. You have a you have a chapter, a whole chapter in the book on the Klan Notre Dame riot of 1924. And I think you use this as a kind of window into some larger things. Why is why is uh, what was that event and why is it important to your story?
2: So this is one of these like wonderful archival finds right. that, you know, you're in the archives and you're like, no way, this couldn't have yeah. happened. And I, had, I had like, you, had,
1: you had never heard of it before?
2: I, I, had, I had heard like slow kind of reference to it in some of the newspapers that okay. I was looking at, but I hadn't found anything like really like yeah. that caught me about it until I was at Notre Dame and I was going through their archives about this. And um, what happened is the Klansmen decided in Indiana that they would march in South Bend mm-hmm. near Notre Dame. Um, they thought that the Catholic students of Notre Dame would not respond to them. I'm not entirely yeah. sure why they thought this, but they sort of assumed they could do this and they would get away with it. Um, Notre Dame was really nervous. Um, they were telling students not to participate, right, not to engage, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the students couldn't help themselves. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and um, greatly outnumbered, right, the number of Klansmen. Right. And um, there's a great picture that I have in the book of a Notre Dame student who has ripped the robe off of a Klansman and has now put the tattered robe on himself, and he's got like this uh-huh. big smile. Yeah. Um, it would it would be like a selfie today, right? It's that a this great is kind picture, of the image yeah. that it is. Um, and so, what I'm interested in is what happens in the fallout of this. Like, how do we narrate this story, right? Right. Um. So the Klan tries to narrate this story in a, like, we were just there to express love, right? right. Love for right. our race, love for, you know, our organization, this sort of thing. And it's the Catholics, right, who were the problem, right, who caused right. the problem, who were um, the ones that started the riot and they just hate us, right? Um, and then the Catholic press is sort of like, no, <laughs> right? You yeah. You came near, you know, a very, like visibly identified Catholic university, right? You acted in these ways and we reacted. And so what was interesting to me was to see the way in which an event in real time, like the perspective could shift depending on whose side you were on. Right. Right, right. And for the clan, it made them like this event made them, Like it made all of their fears about Catholics seem even more real. So I feel like in a certain way, some of their stuff was rhetorical, right? Like it's rhetorical nervousness. But in this instance, they had like Catholic pushback and then had to deal with the fact that like, Oh my goodness, like, is this what pushback looks like in some sort of way? Right. Right, Is this how we're going to be treated? Um, and then Catholics had to deal with the fact that they got painted as the enemy, right? And the, some in the Catholic press were very harsh with Notre Dame students because they're like, look, you've now led – you just acted like stereotypes, yeah, right? Thanks yeah, a lot.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, how dare you do this? Um, but it was so fascinating to think about, like – how we tell these stories from sides that are so opposing, right? right like, right. can you find something in the middle <laughs> that yeah, actually yeah. represents, you know, what's happening um, and, and represents it accurately because it's such a clear example of like how our perspectives color, right? What these events are supposed to mean right. and how we rewrite events like so quickly after they happen, sure. right? Like almost immediately, yeah, um, yeah. you know, um, and, and you see a similar thing happen too with press around some of these events like Charlottesville, right? right where right. Like we're like writing the story in real time and we are like, well, now we have a little bit more information in this, but like, does that fit my political aim? I'm not sure. Right. But this other fact does. Right. Well, Um,
1: that's where I was kind of going with with this. I was going to ask you, uh, I'm assuming it was Warren G. Harding, who was the president at the time of the Notre Dame Klan riot. Did he come out and say that both sides were. (laughs) (laughs) both sides were at fault
2: (laughs) no i have no i have no statement from him (laughs) you know about both sides or anything like this you know but i mean it really i mean this is the kind of i i have a running joke with my um with my husband that like i feel like we're living in my book like i feel like like, I woke up and now we're living in my book and I don't want to live in my book, right? Like, right, I had right. a hard time writing this thing, much yeah, less like yeah. living through this. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting to see the, like, the way the rhetoric works, like the white nationalist rhetoric works now, right? Like, via sure. something like Twitter versus, you know, the yeah. press then as they're, yeah. you know, yeah. sort of working through this. But, um, but yeah, it is. I mean, it's kind of a weird yeah. um, moment where people are like, I keep having journalists say, like, are you surprised right, that right. this happened? And I'm like, no, I'm this is me. Like, yeah. I feel like, <laughs> you know, like I'm like, I feel like it's a weird space for a historian to be in. Yeah. I'm like, cause we're not supposed to be able to like predict the future. That's right. not necessarily what we do. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's one of those where they're like, he's now targeting this group. And I'm like, uh-huh, okay, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. Like that's sort of the playbook. Right. Or this event has happened and I'm like, yep, yeah, that's kind yeah. of happened before. Right. So it is, it is kind of a interesting um, thing to sort of interpret So quick and people wanting to interpret it so quickly, whereas as a historian, I want more time, (laughs) just sort of figure these things out um, rather than do the quick hot take right on these.
1: You've had you've had some time to think about sort of the continuity. Of that. Let, let's take it up to the present. Let's talk. You mentioned Charlottesville, right? Let's and right. I, I sort of joked about the both sides and so forth. And Trump. Let, let's take it up to the present. Um, you've had some time to kind of reflect, not necessarily on what happened at Charlottesville, but but the sort of continuity between your your uh, clan and the twenties, if you will. Sorry, I didn't mean to put it that way. Your clan, but the yeah. clan <laughs> uh, right. in the twenties, and and you know what we saw uh, last was it last month? Yeah, in in Charl- Charlottesville. Charlottesville. We're filming. We're taping this, recording this in September 2017. Um, You know, you mentioned we were talking off uh, before we got on the air. You've had a lot of press. Uh, You've you've been on the air, I should say. People, your phone is ringing. Uh, People are asking you to comment on and provide historical connections or or context for what happened in Charlottesville. So, so as a scholar of the Klan uh, and of the history of white supremacy. You know what stood out to you the most about what happened in Charlottesville to what extent and you've already alluded to this to what extent is is this kind of you know I'm not surprised at this the continuity right This has been right. here for a long time. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to say any more about that, but I'm also interested to hearing if there's any kind of you see any sort of change. Is this manifestation, whether it be, uh, you know, the alt-right or the, 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 the people marching, the, the, the kind of uh, Spencer, Richard Spencer kind of clan or, or, or white, white supremacist group, you know, is there anything different about
2: them? Yeah, no, I mean, I, like, I feel like that's the, like, the historian's burden, right? It's right, like, it's not new, right? Like, I feel like that's, like, commonly my my response, and my, my kids are, like, exasperated when yeah, I say right, that. Right. But, you know, um, and, but I feel like what what is different now is, like, the social media landscape yeah. makes everything feel, like, more urgent and more immediate in a different way than I think reading a newspaper of, like the, um, you know, the riot, the 1924 yeah, riot, like sitting yeah. down and reading that, you know, days later, right, right is a different right. kind of feel than immediately, like on Twitter, right, someone is like, did you see the many sides comment? Oh, my gosh, I can't believe right. he did that, right? Which right. is like the, like, most understated way to handle that, right? Versus yeah, like yeah. the other folks that reacted to this in some sort of way. And so I feel like that social media aspect of this makes it different, right? The internet makes it different. Um, and the, the alt-right, in a lot of ways, has been able to sort of gain ground because of internet culture, yeah, right? Yeah. And because of their participation in this in some way, I mean, one of the things that was so striking to me about Charlottesville is that, you know, the guys marching aren't covering their faces, right? Right? You know, I mean, so we keep having these images that are going to haunt me for the rest of eternity yeah. of all of these white guys with torches and polo shirts and khakis, right. And there are no hoods, yeah. you know, and in the twenties, the Klan at least, had this idea that membership should be hooded to protect your like personal identity right. and I feel like we've had a shift where it's like wait right do, do people think it's okay yeah. <laughs> to participate yeah. in the alt right and that yeah. this is actually like you can actually show your face and profess these ideals that's something that we should think about really carefully if that's the case right that and and there have been consequences for some of those folks, right, that they've been tracked sure. down and like, lost jobs and these sorts of things. Yeah. But that sort of willingness to march so publicly and so visibly, I think, is an interesting piece of that that we have to kind of um, yeah. think about and think about what it says about us right now. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the kind of nerve wracking part for me.
1: Yeah, let's 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 finish up with that. Our time's about up, but. Uh, you have this wonderful quote from the Columbia University historian, Kenneth Jackson, who wrote a book about the Klan. And, you know, he says, quote, to examine the Klan is to examine ourselves, right? Unquote. Uh, Elaborate on that. In what, in what ways, uh, uh, as you studied the Klan, as we think about the Klan, as we read your book, in which way, in what ways are we kind of reflecting on ourselves, our society, you know? um, Yeah.
2: Yeah. I kind of wonder if we are right. Like, so, I mean, I love that line because it shows that like to think about America, you know, to think about the Klan, like that requires some deep reflection on sort of how primarily white people like participate in these systems of oppression, right? How are, how are we, you know, part of structural racism. Like, how do we sort of pass this kind of stuff on? How do we do these sorts of things? And what is kind of curious to me about that is that I feel like now there is this kind of way in which people talk about white supremacy in the context of, like, the extremists that I tend to study. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's harder to do that that other, like, deeper reflection work, <laughs> about like if we like really look at the Klan and look at their racism and look at the things they're saying and look at the way they're acting and the things that they're doing or even the alt-right and like take a minute to be like, how does that reflect ideas that I hold, right? right? Or systems that I participate in or how to do this. And I'm not sure that we're quite at that stage yet. I want us to be, right? Where we're really thinking about like, how can this group exist, right? Like how have we not like shouted them down already in some sort of way? Um, And and how does sort of, in action in some way, allow for that to happen to you. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a kind of a harder question. And I think it's a way in which white supremacy is a hard concept for a lot of people, because most people want to think white supremacy Klansmen and um, white supremacy is more like the structure of our lives and our history that we have to really um, carefully engage. But um, but yeah, it is one of those where I found that line in his book and thought like, man, I wish I had written this um, because it's just so excellent about like what happens if we really engage with what they're saying, right?
1: Uh, well, our time is about up. Kelly, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for bringing the past to bear on the present uh, and providing us some context for current events, as well as helping us to understand a little bit more about uh, race and gender and the Klan in the 1920s.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on.
1: Thank you. Drew, I love these episodes when we have a major current event and we can reflect on that current event historically like Kelly helped us to do uh, with Charlottesville. Obviously,
0: what happened in Charlottesville is such a terrible tragedy, but you know, it, it does feel like Part of our vocation as historians to to be able to to bring some some
1: very specific type of thinking to bear on these kinds of events. Yeah, it just. It, I asked her that question. I said I went off script when I asked her that one question. I should have had it in the script. We often give our questions in advance to our to our guests. Uh, you know, the the question about you know how do you kind of live year after year with these with these uh, with this clan writing and so forth. Um, you know how do you learn how to empathize with those kinds of things and try to understand them on their terms without bringing, uh, you know, our kind of moral sensibilities to bear on that? Uh, that that's a difficult, difficult task. You know, I talk a little bit about that, about the struggle of doing that in my book, Why Study History? But it takes a great deal of of discipline for the historian to be able be able to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, and and you know, I would argue that. There, there are maybe limits, you know, not not necessarily in in the product that you 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 finish with, but uh, you know, as as Kelly shared, that at a certain point, your your personality wins, right? As you're as you're going yeah. through this process, and you really do have to to approach it with with self care, and and I think what's important is um, someone who is able to be um, even handed in an, yeah. analyzing this past actually makes the much more effective argument. Yeah. Right, you know, because because I think one of the things we as a society are wrestling with is to what extent do we as as white people, as men, as Christians or whatever, uh, to what extent do we bear at least some modicum of responsibility? Right. And because she was able to do such a thorough and 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 kind of thoughtful and even-handed job in unpacking that history, right, it, it actually is a very compelling case that, that this is not the, as she argues, this part of, re- of re- American religious history that's Way outside of the mainstream, yeah. but in fact is right there uh, on one side of it, but has so much it holds in common with things that we don't consider to be radical that yeah. are actually in the DNA of who we are as Americans. I mean, it's very,
1: it's very American. You know, you could you could even argue that what happened in Charlottesville historically is a very American thing to happen. Maybe not conducive to American ideals, but certainly you know we've seen this before, as Kelly. Uh, has pointed out. And, and in some ways, you know, we, she really challenges that kind of progressive narrative, right? Right. That this stuff should eventually just disappear. Um, and history does not move in these kinds of progressive, uh, trajectories, right? There's, you know, you you think you think the right side of history, as the politicians say, have triumphed, and then something like this happens, and you say, "Well, wait a minute." Uh, you know, history moves in kind of strange, right. strange ways. History does not bend towards justice. As as. Sometimes former, it, yeah, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, and you know, I mean that, that phrase is a great phrase and I often use it a lot of times, but it's, it's not a historical statement. It's a, it's a kind of moral statement or a, or even in some cases, maybe a, a religious statement or a theological statement or a political statement. Right. Um, so, so I also appreciated the way she, she talked about getting some perspective, right. Uh, you know, she's been asked now she's, she, her phone's been ringing off the hook about, uh, about, media appearances after charlottesville and um you know she she's a religious studies scholar so she speaks to the moment but then at the same time she's also a historian so she needs some perspective to you know it's mm-hmm. like it's like people who would say to me after 9-11 like what is the significance of this event in american history i go you know ask me in like 20 years you know, or yeah. something like that so so i think that's that's also uh, an important part of um the historian's mm-hmm. vocation too Yeah. And actually, I do want to put in a plug here. And if
0: you're especially interested in seeing the ways in which historians who are so typically very dispassionate with the way they approach their vocation, uh, wrestling with the kind of very present realities and the implications of their historical work, I really do recommend uh, one of our favorite podcasts here. Uh, backstory, their episode Charlottesville, our town, our country, because of course, Backstory is a production of of the University of Virginia, and so yeah. although the historians are located in different places around uh, the East Coast, they are they're they're based in in Charlottesville, and 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 you know it was a very powerful episode as yeah. they both as they wrestled with what they know but also just the sheer emotional impact of, of seeing a place that's really dear to them they They all have connections of some
1: sort to, yeah. to Charlottesville. So it was a, it's a really good listen. Yeah. The past is always speaking to the present and vice versa. Right. I mean, so, so yeah, go check that episode out. I haven't listened to it yet either. I'm going to have to check it out too, based yeah. on your recommendation. Well, Drew, I think that's a wrap for today. I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. We're glad to be back here in season four Uh, Thanks for joining us, and may your way of improvement always lead home.
0: This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher, so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Kelly J. Baker. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Dirley hermling And your host, as always, is John Fia.
1: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day,